Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. I'd like to introduce Phil Irvine. He is Vice President of Audience Intelligence at RPA, a modern ad agency with a timeless perspective, people first. Has a collective of specialists with deep benches of talent in nearly every discipline a modern marketer needs today. Phil has ownership of the audience intelligence practice for the agency, building out the vision and merchandising for the group services internally and externally to clients. He is a marketing executive with vast experience from a brand and agency perspective. He is also the host of Clear the Air with RPA podcast. Welcome, Phil. How are you? Oh, very good. Uh, thanks, Darshan. Thanks for having me on your show here. Pleasure to have you. So uh, let's get started with your post-MBA career and strategy. And tell me some of the aha moments that led you into marketing and advertising communications. Yeah, well, you know what's funny about that? Um, when I was receiving my MBA, uh, you know, really there was, there was three primary career paths, um, management, consulting, banking, and brand management. So for anybody that wanted to angle into the marketing function, a, a lot of the work was presented as being a brand manager, or owning a PL, which was extremely attractive. Um, I just had this perception though, that to get into that arena, you had to have a creative, uh, a creative bug, a creative interest and a creative mind. And I, I was coming from a technology background before my MBA. So, um, you know, the aha moment for me was, I went to Experian after I graduated uh, and got my MBA. I was involved in a rotational program where I did uh, strategy work for our global strategy team, our government team, our operations team. And um, honestly, what was interesting is it didn't really work out. The goal was to um, transition you into a full-time role at Experian in their credit services division. But um that led me to actually look at Experian's marketing services division. And back then, uh, email marketing was just becoming a really big thing that was making companies a lot of money. And I found it was a great fit for myself because it was the intersection of customer data, databases, and how that can influence creative with marketing messages, experience management. And so... I think um, it's funny. I went to my I went to get my MBA to get out of technology and data, but then I found myself back into sort of a similar type of role, but with a lens of looking at how to improve marketing experiences versus just technology systems and operations. Interesting. Yeah, I also after my MBA, I was pursuing uh, careers in management consulting, but then I was drawn more towards marketing, branding, and communications as well. So. You are the VP of Audience Intelligence at RPA. Tell us, what is Audience Intelligence? Yeah, yeah. You know, not to be, it's funny, we talk a lot about it here because the acronym is AI. So not to be confused with artificial intelligence, which is a very uh, buzzword, very cliche term right now. Um, so Audience Intelligence with us, it, it, it bore out of a gap that clients we work with have where um, once uh, an advertising or media plan is set up to promote a product, a new model launch, or so on and so forth, um, 
the activities of trying to find consistent audiences to target across all of the digital channels that you can think of, um, all of the offline channels, like trying to reach the same people within television, radio, direct mail, it was a very disjointed and fragmented process. So the impetus with creating this group was a centralized uh, subject matter expertise type group that could put some could, that could streamline the audience development and also audience activation if if you have a goal of trying to reach the same audiences with your campaigns that you set up. So that was you know that was the impetus behind creating this centralized audience team. Um, the way that it's evolved now though is on top of what I would like to call kind of the tail end of campaign planning, which is you know, trying to find the right audiences, sizing them to make sure you can reach your scale and business objectives with, with like sales targets. Um, we also use data that we have access to, to inform uh, strategy and planning as well too. So, um, you know, the, the four kind of quadrants that I, that I kind of break down, what we call our audience research and discovery process are um, demographic traits, media consumption traits. So what types of media platforms are people consuming, advertising, and just content in general? Um, attitudinal traits, and then also motivational traits. Like what are the motivators for people to purchase a particular project and so, or a particular product? And so um, now we're getting to a point, we're definitely not there, but we're trying to transition into um, being a part of media strategy or just our general strategy teams. and providing inputs into uh, media strategy, which essentially is how to distribute uh, dollars and investments across channels to promote a product, um, as well as creative strategy as well to, um, you know, our, our point of view is we feel, uh, especially with these attitudinal and motivational type traits, that that can be used as an input into how to set up creative direction, creative design from either a tonal perspective, from a family structure perspective, like, like what types of concepts should you have in your ads or your, you know, your imagery. So um, that's the way we're trying to approach it right now. And, and, and to me, to me, both pieces are important, but we're, we're trying to put a lot of uh, um, investment in time on the, how we can intersect more with media and creative strategy. Can you give me an example of how this new strategy or this thrust into this area is going to benefit your clients? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, traditionally, I, you know, I, I haven't been, I, I haven't worked as a creative or worked on a creative team. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of research that goes into what the, um, the optimal creative design should be for how you want to set up. And I'll speak in terms of video since it's the most kind of interactive and um, where we spend the majority of our time here at RPA. Um, a lot of the decisions are based off of, yeah, past performance, you know, types of concepts that have performed well in the past, um, you know, market research, competitor research, looking at what, you know, your competitors are doing. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times from what I've observed is um, leadership and organizations, they'll have aspirations of who they want to connect with, with creative spots. And so um, they'll want to angle their creative towards, you know, who they want to connect with. So, um, with, with a big auto client that we work with, they're constantly trying to connect more with the millennial population, 
the more multicultural populations. And so that's driving a lot of the creative direction and creative design. So, which is good to some extent, but our philosophy is, is if you can get access to your current customers or past customers and try to look at um, that data and see what types of lifestyle, behavioral, attitudinal traits kind of over-index for people who have actually transacted with you, um, that should be used as a minimum as an input into your creative design and creative di- direction. So that's that's essentially kind of what we're how we're trying to intersect more with that upfront kind of design process. And your intelligence, uh, what's the balance you strike between quantitative and qualitative? Yeah, um, I would say, um, yeah, in, in terms of, you know, honestly, in terms of effort and in terms of kind of work output for the team, it's probably a balance of about 40% qualitative, 60% quantitative, because um, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the work that my team does is around finding these audiences with the technologies and tools that we have access to. And um, to keep it simple, you know, a client may have a, a target to drive a million website visits. And so um, based off of historical data and, you know, past engagement via different media channels, like we basically have to make sure that we can size our audiences the right ways so that we can meet these upfront objectives that that client set. And so honestly, by the nature of just um, all of the work involved with the different platforms we work with, um, onboarding tools like LiveRamp, CDPs, DMPs, um, and then different data sources. It, it, it takes a lot of time to, to find these audiences, stitch them together, and then size them to make sure we're going to meet um, you know, the objectives that, that, that clients have. So it's, a, it's about a 40-60 split. I'd, I'd like to see it reversed at some point, but that's kind of how we're operating right now. But it's also a focus on being more customer-centric, isn't it correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, part of this as well too, is, you know, I've been speaking kind of broadly about how we try to inform creative strategy, uh, media strategy, but, um, you know, taking it down a level, uh, with, with a couple of our clients where we're working with them to formulate different types of customer segments and segmentation. Um, and, and this is kind of, tapping into my CRM background. I used to run email and loyalty programs for a couple of, a couple of companies like the Books, um, an e-commerce flower company, um, Allergan, it, it, they, they're in the aesthetic space. And um, it, it, you know, the concept of, of personalization is, is much more prevalent in the CRM space. And honestly, that's because you have a lot more data. It's a little bit easier to, to put those types of rules in market with email platforms, marketing automation platforms. But we're trying to bring that type of philosophy and thinking to advertising where it's a little more difficult because, you know, it's, it's, it's more difficult to create uh, 10 different versions of a video because you have to reshoot, find different actors to align with, you know, the logic or the rules that you put in place. But we're trying to see how we can influence small uh, iterations here and there. And then with, with just with digital and when you're just working with kind of imagery, um, there's platforms like uh, DCO, Dynamic Creative Optimization. And we're trying to figure out a way that we can inject more of the learnings we have about the audience into how different creative variations should be structured so that it's more, um, not necessarily a one-to-one connection with how we communicate, but 
um, at a at a segment level or or a persona level of of aligning the messaging with the consumers we're trying to connect with. How many of the brands that you work with actually are customer centric enough, or do you find that you often have to, uh, you know, help them become more and more customer centric? Yeah, that, I mean, um, the the answer is, and I, I want to uh, answer this diplomatically. Is, is <laughs> I, I mean, I think a lot of the clients would agree. Lots of effort, you know, everybody knows it's where they need to go, but, you know, nobody's completely there yet. Um, and, and and then when you layer in, because um, when I think of customer centricity, I don't just think of, um, you know, outbound advertising, direct marketing, where you're proactively trying to communicate with customers. I, I also think about it from an inbound experience management perspective. So uh, customer service service interactions with calls, um, in auto, uh, service experiences when you're trying to get, um, you know, a tire fixed or your oil changed or something like that. And, um, and, you know, and getting to a mode of where it's an omni-channel experience where it's kind of the same experience across all of these, these touch points. I think, I think some organizations are definitely, they, they have the, you know, some have the planning, some made the investments to get the strategic thinking, in line, I think the transitioning to the executional component is a major challenge because it's a it's a combination of getting the right resources, the right dollars to invest if you need different types of tools and technologies to realize this type of vision. Um, but it's also changing the mode of thinking of your your leadership and your your people that are actually going to help you to realize this vision because. Um, on top of just making these adjustments to become more omnichannel, it's also a, a, an exercise in changing potentially your, your, your KPIs or your measurements of success for your different employees and their different functions. So um, I, I think that, you know, those are just some of the roadblocks. Uh, you know, a lot of people definitely have a, a big emphasis on improving this, but um, yeah, it's, it, it's something that nobody's going to, you know, going to be there hundred percent anytime soon. So it sounds like a big challenge is the mindset. And have you found a way to help convince uh, brands to to go down this path a little more uh, in terms of shifting their mindset? Yeah, it's um, you. Know, I, I I mean, a lot of different approaches to um, to get at that. I think for you know for a lot of the leaders, especially people in media and advertising, um, I think. Um, uh, showing visuals or visualizations of how you can adjust different experiences and then showing the data behind why you're adjusting a different personalized message or, you know, either creative or copy or whatnot. Um, I've thought I've seen that that's helped people to start to buy in. Um, I think also, you know, another big approach that I'm a fan of is just always being in a mode of testing new things because, I think from you know what I found, whether it's a large organization or a small, even if you have a three-year vision, you, you can't just get there overnight. You got to continually iterate with small tests and small adjustments, and then and then prove out those small wins to help get you to your ultimate you know three-year path or three-year three-year vision or whatnot. So I think constantly, um, you know, the way that my team approaches it is every time we're planning for a new campaign or a new major effort we're constantly trying to introduce at least three to five new tests that start to get them more in the personalization, you know, targeted marketing with creative type of mindset. And so we, 
uh, you know, it's not just testing, but then also uh, closing the feedback loop and, and, sh- and showing the results to show that like why they were good ideas too. So clearly, I mean, audience intelligence really can drive business outcomes from what you've seen. It's a matter of experimenting and trying different things, um, but it really can lead to uh, business outcomes of growth and, 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 and other objectives, correct? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. It's, um, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not just um, if, you know, if you want to try to retarget site visitors, you know, we, you know, just trying to find people that visited the site previously, like we're, we're looking at signals that are giving us leading indicators of who's going to visit your site, who's going to perform lower funnel actions, who's going to do price comparisons and things of that nature. So there's a, yeah, there's a lot of thought that goes into it. And we're, we're, we look at, you know, we look at first party data, second party data, third party data. So we're looking at a bunch of different signals to make these decisions on who to, you know, who to target. And so now it sounds like you want to take this intelligence to even try even different messaging based on this intelligence uh, to be more targeted. That's what, that's the area you want to go more into. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of untapped potential in, in, uh, in that arena. And I, I, you know, just not to kind of, you know, repeat myself, but I think I, I'm really fascinated with the, the TV space right now um, because, you know, as I'm sure your, your listeners are aware, you know, there's a big shift with traditional broadcast television viewership and people are cutting the cord. They're, you know, they're streaming more, they're using, um, you know, they're streaming live TV on platforms like, like YouTube TV, Hulu live TV, but then, you know, they're all, some are only watching, you know, Hulu, HBO max, Netflix, you know, things of that nature. So it, it just makes it a lot more challenging to reach people, reach those large masses through television or, you know, as opposed to in the past, but, um, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of new capabilities from a technology standpoint to, to find these really specific niche audiences through these streaming data-driven uh, connected TV platforms um, to target the right people and with the right message. So, um, and, and then there's also some other players that are popping up that um, I haven't worked with a lot specifically, but they're claiming they can help you with content creation in a quicker fashion to create more of these variations that I was alluding to before. So I, to me, that's a really, it's a really exciting space because that, um, and honestly, it's a, it's interesting enough too. It's a, it's a great bridge with some of our more legacy employees at RPA. Cause a lot of these, a lot of these people grew up on broadcast TV and direct mail. You know, when you think about advertising 30 years ago and now it's so fragmented between digital and, all of these other different TV mechanisms that it's, it's a way that we can kind of connect because they, they love TV as a channel, but it's, it's bringing a data driven approach. So. And what type of role have you seen that audience intelligence plays in terms of optimizing the experience for customers? And do you have an example of that where, you know, some audience intelligence really led to enhancing the experience as well? Yeah. Um, I, there's, yeah, a couple of examples to speak to, but I, th- I think one that, that, that always will stand out with me is, um, I, actually in a prior life when I worked at, so the books company, um, I think I mentioned it before, but an online e-commerce floral company, um, you know, we, uh, so to give some context, uh, Valentine's day and mother's day are what we would call our two Super Bowl moments for the company. Um, 
they accounted for 60 to 70% of yearly revenue in, in the floral space in general. Um, I might be outdated with those figures, but I think it's around 60 to 80% or whatnot. Um, and this was during, this was for Mother's Day. Um, uh, so we had a, we had a CDP, a customer data platform. And one of the capabilities that we took advantage of was we, um, we were able to bucket our customers into different lifetime value quadrants. Um, it was like uh, plat or yeah, platinum was kind of the highest uh, bronze was kind of the lowest uh, characterization. And so, um, so what we did is we, we injected those lifetime value segments into our customer service platform, which was Zendesk at the time. And a big thing with these two holidays is ensuring that deliveries um, are delivered to the recipients on time. That's the number one um, activity that can be a deterrent to lead a customer to choose a competitor and shop somewhere else for a future holiday for flowers. So, um, you know, I, I heard this anecdotally, but we, you know, we, we, my team partnered with our uh, customer service team. We, we bought in all of this data so that the, the idea was as they were servicing uh, customer service inquiries um, through our online mechanisms that they could see these um, classifications of customers as they were servicing. And the intent was that could dictate the urgency with how they responded to these requests. Right. So um, I found out, you know, uh, anecdotally, um, so for those that are aware of Shark Tank and the Sharks, um, Barbara Corcoran was actually one of our big customers and her delivery was actually going to be delayed by two or three days. But uh, one of our customer service reps, he spotted it um, four or five days in advance of Mother's Day. And he basically communicated with our operations team to prioritize, you know, her delivery and her order. And, uh, you know, long story short, we, we were able to prioritize her order over others to make sure the flowers were delivered on time. So um, I think that was, you know, I, I hear anecdotes a lot of people that run these large loyalty programs and the concept of, you know, ensuring you're treating your best customers the right way. And, that, and not to say you're not going to treat your other customers, but just prioritizing your resources to make sure that they stay happy. And that was a great example that I witnessed firsthand where, you know, she was happy, kept buying from books afterwards. So <laughs> That's good. What are some common mistakes you find that brands do when it comes to audience intelligence? So I'll answer it in, in kind of two ways. I think you have some brands that are too reliant on data where they don't take the time to think through if an insight is practical and makes sense. Um, but then I also think there's other scenarios where brands are, they, they, they spend too much time thinking about what's practical, what's makes sense and don't listen to the data. And so, um, you know, actually I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll not steal, but I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback off of an example that I'm reading in a book right now. Um, Neil Hoyne is a good friend of mine. Um, he's got a book out right now where he, he talks about this concept of customer, the right way to, to basically do customer data-driven marketing and um, I've seen, I've actually seen this with a couple, um, a couple of brands that I've worked with too. Is um, especially when you're in the early stages of growth, um, you know, it's 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 great to come up with a lifetime value calculation for you know your customers, and and the importance of that is that you can back into what are your spend levels that you can tolerate to make sure that you're 
you're going to be profitable, that unit economics are going to make sense that you can reinvest more money back into the company. And um, the problem with an example he cited is uh, it was in year two or three, they thought their customer, the average lifetime value was about 550. And so based off of that, they thought they could spend $200 or so to acquire new customers. But um, the problem was that it was, it was an inaccurate calculation. They had a couple of outlier customers that, that skewed that average lifetime value bucket. So, um, so then they, they ended up overspending and then just ended up not, not being profitable. Um, I'll give you another example too. I actually was just chatting about this with um, uh, Eli Winkler. He used to be the CMO at Lazy Boy, the uh, furniture company. Um, so they they sell couches, they sell ottomans, they sell uh, like, like like tables and lamps and just a lot of accessories for your living room. Um, they 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 had some data that suggested that people that bought ottomans might potentially want to buy other furniture accessories for a living room. Um, but when they put in tests to try to cross sell these other products, they just didn't find that the take rate just wasn't there. And taking a step back, uh, you know, a big thing that, that me and him were chatting about was, you know, a person that, that is buying an ottoman, they, they may already have their living room set up. They're just looking for that last piece to make it, you know, whole and feel comfortable as opposed to, um, somebody that, that has just bought a couch they're going to be more apt to fill the rest of their living room with the other accessories. And they might be more apt to want to entertain more people as well too, versus that other person that, that bought the ottoman. So it was a really good example where some of the data may have shown something different, but like taking a step back and thinking through what's practical um, they found the couch buyers were more ripe for cross sales than the, the ottoman buyers. Interesting. I think, I think it's a great example of sometimes relying too much on data in terms of what people are doing isn't enough of the story, right? You need to go behind the context and really understand that. And that requires some qualitative, I think, to, to ensure that the data, the way you're interpreting is actually what buyers are being motivated or driven by. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, it's a constant conversation for us. Um, uh, one of the tricky things we get into is we try to figure out the right way to message multicultural audiences. And we'll, we'll find data that'll say, you know, these people are gamers, these like gambling. And um, the data may say one thing, but we, we, we constantly have conversations to think about like what's practical, how does it mesh with other research and things of that nature. So, Is there one best practice you wish more brands would be doing? Oh man, that's a, that's a loaded question. A lot of ways to, to, to answer that. I, I think, um, you know, and, and this is, this is biased because of my background, but I spent, I spent six, seven years focused in CRM. I've now worked in advertising for one to two years. And I, I still don't know why these two worlds just don't connect more and why um, all of the learnings and insights that a CRM or a customer marketing organization can't funnel back into the advertisers. Like um, it's still, it's still a mystery to me, like why there's not more of a connection on that front. And, and this isn't even counting um, the service part of organizations, customer, you know, contact centers and things like that. Like, like why there's these disconnects. I, I understand some of the barriers, especially if you're a large organization, you have different leadership with each group, you have different goals, different objectives. But 
Um, I, I just, you know, that, that's always been one of the biggest, the biggest mysteries to me. Cause I think you're, you're missing out on a lot of opportunity, especially on the advertising side, if you're not tapping into your customer data to, to align on like what, what outbound messaging offers, you know, creative strategies can help acquire the right customers for you versus just mass customers. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, cause that's the front line, right? And that's where you're getting a real time feedback and input from customers uh, at that level. And if you can incorporate that in terms of your overall intelligence, that would make a big difference for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What do you see on the horizon that will impact, do you think, the way marketers approach audience intelligence? I think because with the explosion of channels, with the pure explosion of content, um, just content that's available to consume, um, more attention towards how you can cut through the clutter to connect with your customers and connect with prospective shoppers is going to be just so much more important than in the past. I think, uh, I, you know, there's, there's some, some business categories where they're very offer driven price driven, where that's always going to be a play. But I think, um, how, how brands think about, uh, interacting with their customers and with prospective shoppers through, whether it's through video, whether it's through grassroots events at physical locations, I think that's going to be a big thing. Um, you know, one other thing that I'll touch on and, uh, partially, I guess, partially a plug for place IQ, who I mentioned earlier, um, they, you know, I, I actually, inter- or I hosted their SVP of strategy. Um, one interesting thing that they've been looking at too, is being able, when you think about COVID and, you know, um, Locations are starting to open up more now with COVID, but you still have a certain facet of individuals that are that are going to prefer online shopping, online interactions, and those types of experiences versus in-person experiences. And I think the more that you can detect those preference types for customers and then speak to them um, with that recognition where it's going to be a better experience for them tailored to how they want it. Uh, shop and interact with you is going to be, that's going to be something that's going to be here to stay. Um, even as we're easing with the easing back off the restrictions and more and more, at least here in the U S you know, more and more locations are, are opening up. I think that's going to be incredibly important um, in the next yeah, five, 10 years or so. So I think you're talking about even customizing it further, the online experience for those who prefer that method of interaction, correct? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What area of marketing and uh, or marketing intelligence would you like in, to delve into further, and why? I touched on this earlier. Um, so, te- you know, tele- television is is a big arena. I think. Oh yeah, um, I uh, you know, television again. Again, um, how do the intersection of of data and creating. Uh, niche audiences and then finding them through these different television outlets is something that's going to be super interesting. Um, another area for myself, you know, a li- I guess a little broader than marketing it, that's really fascinating me is how audience intelligence can become an input into con- content creation in general. And I guess, you know, I, I live out here in Los Angeles, the entertainment capital of the world. And you know, we have all these studios and these mechanisms where film, television are produced. And I, I feel like um, uh, the 
the thought of, of diving into what types of content and what behaviors certain audiences exhibit, and then using that as a feedback loop into um, as inputs into what types of new shows, movies, and content should be created. I think Netflix is, is well known for being really good at this, but I, I feel like with a lot of the other streaming platforms, it's, it, it's, because I've asked this question to to people that work at those places, and it's not it's it's not necessarily connected. Um, you know, part of that's driven by these content creators, these directors, these producers. They have their visions of what's going to be great content, but I think using past audience data, audience intel as major inputs into that will be something that that will be interesting to kind of follow in the future. Interesting. Who in the world of marketing would you love to have, or even market intelligence, would you love to have lunch with and why? Yeah, you know, um, I, honestly, uh, actually a guy that I, I met about four or five years ago, his name is Chris Stadler. And so um, a long time ago, I actually interviewed for a CRM role at Ironman, um, the main tri- organizer of triathlon events, you know, uh, internationally. And what was impressive about him is he was the CMO at Ironman. Um, they had a great campaign at the time. I think it was anything is possible. They had these really inspirational videos of, of the athletes training. And um, I, I don't do Ironman or I only did a half Ironman, but I'm less involved, but it was just really, um, really connected with me at the time when I, when I was you know talking with them. But um, he actually also used to be the, the CMO of Equinox, which is a major, uh, chain of gym brands um, out here. I believe they're only in the U.S. and they just have. You know, I'm just really uh, number one. I've been a member there since 2013, so almost 10 years. Um, uh, they, you know, they're on the 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 premium end of the gym membership spectrum, um, and I, I've never wavered in my membership. But they they just do a really good job connecting with their users. They got a a great mobile app. Um, it's proactive with recommending classes, nutritional advice for you. Um, they've had some really interesting campaigns. Uh, Equinox made me do it was a real popular one. Um, Equinox's life was another major one that really resonated with a lot of the members. Um, and then it also goes down to the, the experience at the gyms themselves. They're always really clean. Um, top of the line amenities, you know, showers. And, and Chris is a guy, I, I had a brief chat with him. It was, it was in an interview mode, but I, I would just love to pick his brain more about, you know, his thought process around uh, development of some of those campaigns, how they, you know, lived, lived out those, those thoughts and the strategies, like how they actually put it in market and put it in place. Cause I thought, I thought both brands did a great job of what their, their, they tried their missions or tried to dictate what their missions would be. So Interesting. Well, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining me on the podcast today. It was really been, uh, I enjoyed it and learning more about market intelligence and, you know, what could uh, be done better as well as what's on the horizon. So I want to thank you very much, Phil, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the audience learned a thing or two here. I, I was trying. So we'll see. <laughs> I think a good conversation like this, there's always something to be gleaned from it. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>